2: Hello and welcome to this Outchanging World podcast from RNZ National, presented by me, Alison Balance. If I tell you that introduced predators such as stoats and feral cats are making a meal of our native birds, A, I know that this isn't news to you, and B, I suspect the image that's just come to mind is a forest? Well, that's all very true, but for this story, we're going to head out to another rather overlooked habitat, a braided riverbed in the Mackenzie Basin at the foot of the Southern Alps. In my experience, braided rivers from a distance look featureless and barren. But when you get close up, they are full of life and beauty. They're breeding grounds for some rare native birds, everything from black-fronted terns and black-billed gulls to ribals and black stilts. And sadly, yes, these shorebirds face the same problems from introduced predators as our forest birds. Predator Free New Zealand 2050 has put the spotlight on how we might try and get rid of rats, stoats and possums across the whole country. At the moment we use toxins or traps, and there are plenty of clever folk dreaming up ways of improving these or inventing new systems. But in the meantime, our birds are still getting eaten, so could we buy some time for them and improve their chances of successfully producing chicks? It's an idea called chemical camouflage. It involves putting predators off the scent. Quite literally. Grant Norbury is from Manaki Whenua Landcare Research. He's been leading a massive two-year experiment trialling chemical camouflage in the Mackenzie Basin. There are four study sites on the Cass, Tekapo and Macaulay Rivers and each of these sites covers hundreds of hectares. Two sites are treated with chemical camouflage and we'll get to the nitty-gritty of what that actually involves quite soon. The other two sites are controls that don't get treated. The measure of success is how many birds successfully nest and hatch their eggs. To do this, a team of five ornithologists have to find and follow 60 nests at each of the four sites. Late last year I went to Tekapo to find out more. Chief Bird Observer Nikki Macarthur from Wildlife Management International offered to take me out to meet some nesting shorebirds so I could see for myself why they're so vulnerable to introduced predators. I also discover just how challenging it is to find 240 nests. So Nikki, I'm pleased to say that the... Rain has stopped, and although we can see new snow on the hills, actually the sun is trying to shine, so that's delightful.
3: Yes, it's actually quite pleasant out here today. It's a nice gentle breeze and not too cold. Um, being quite an exposed site, we can have some pretty windy and pretty cold days, so actually it's turned out really well for us. And this is
2: what, the Cass River Delta?
3: That's right, yes, yeah. so about 15 minutes from Lake Tekapur, and this is the, yeah, the delta of the Cass River, where it empties into Lake Tekapur relatively weed free, lots and lots of shorebirds and yeah, it's, a, it's a, just a wonderful example of quite a nice piece of braided river habitat.
2: Okay, well you've got a map there with all the nests marked, you've got them on your GPS so you can lead us directly to what we're we going to look at first.
3: So we're going to a nest we've called cs 62 which is a banded doctoral nest and a couple of days ago it was still going, the bird was still incubating so we'll go have a look at that and see what's up today.
2: We are heading towards a small rock cairn. It houses a motion-triggered infrared trail camera that goes off every time something moves in front of it.
3: Alison, if you kind of keep your eye on the rock pile, you may see the bird kind of jump off if the nest is still going. Um, if we don't see the bird, if, if we get to the nest and there's no bird around but there's the eggs in the nest, we have to then check through the camera footage just to make sure they're still sitting on the eggs and that they haven't been abandoned. OK, so banded
2: dotterel. I'm looking for quite a small bird.
3: Yeah, a very small brown bird, um, only about 60 grams. They're not much bigger than a black bird, really. And, of course, against this terrain, we're on you know very sort of brown and grey-coloured background here. They can be quite hard to spot. So we're basically looking for, for movement away from the nest is what you're sort of looking for. When they're standing still, they just disappear. They blend into the background. And...
2: Yeah, this river delta is bare gravel. It's really low-growing cushion plants. It's quite a bit of hyracium.
3: Yes, unfortunately, yeah. There's weeds
2: growing in it, but um, yeah, everything's low and brown and grey. Okay. That's right,
3: yes. We're on a more sort of consolidated terrace that doesn't get disturbed by um, you know floods very often, so there's a bit more vegetation on here than some of the cleaner gravels closer to the river.
2: So we've arrived at the... Mound of rocks. Did you see anything move?
3: No, no, I didn't. I didn't see anything get off. That makes our job slightly more difficult. So you can see about half a metre in front of the camera, there's the nest. Oh, yes. With three
2: Beautiful, ends. greeny, speckled eggs. They just look like rocks.
3: They do, yeah. So they blend in remarkably well. So obviously with a camera pointing right at it, it's fairly easy to spot. We can imagine we're combing the riverbed every every day um, without any clue as to where the nests are and that's that's what we're having to try and spot and um, we need to find 60 of those at each site. So um, yeah, it can be quite challenging at times and basically we use the birds to show us where the nests are so rather than just search systematically Oh that would be hopeless completely hopeless <laughs> on an area the size of this so we basically, we're basically looking for female birds because they do most of the daytime incubation and then backing right off until they're sort of comfortable with us been at a safe distance and if if they have a nest with usually within sort of 15 to 20 minutes at most they'll head back there and, and plonk themselves down and then our next challenge then is to walk to the nest so that we can set the camera up which itself can be a bit of a challenge in an area like this with not many landmarks.
2: So now you've got to check the trail camera to see whether a bird flushed but we missed it.
3: That's right, yes. Yeah. So we've, we can just see in front of us a band of doctors flowing Yeah, I just heard something
2: flying fly in and it's a little b- bobbing in the distance.
3: So that's the the male bird. He's got a very big, bold chestnut stripe across the chest and you can see how he's bobbing his head and chest up and down. So that's a sign he's a little bit worried about us, quite alarmed, and he's, he's coming towards us at the moment. So that's a pretty good clue that that's the male that belongs to this nest So I suspect this nest is still going, but our other check we'll do is we'll grab the trail camera and just have a look at how many shots or clips that it's taken, and that'll give us a sense of how active, how much motion is occurring around the nest. It's an oyster catcher, getting a little upset. So the camera's telling us there's over a thousand photographs on this particular memory card, so that's, to me, a pretty good clue. The nest is still active, um, together with the fact that the male's hanging around acting a bit upset.
2: And behind you, there are all sorts of dotterals flushing off nests because the, the oyster catcher was bothering
3: them. Oh, right, that's right. <laughs> so we're actually fairly close to an oyster catcher nest. You can see an oyster catcher out in front of us, about 100 metres away, sort of scurrying around. Yep. Um, that's roughly the direction that the nest is in. They're extremely flighty birds in this open habitat, so even though we're still quite some distance from the nest, we've already flushed that oyster catcher from the nest and they're getting a bit upset that we're here. It's all done, so it's just a matter of arming the camera again and putting it back on the nest. So how long will the dotterels incubate those eggs for? Between 26 and 28 days, typically. Yeah, it's a relatively long time they have to try and get that nest through until it hatches. Once it does hatch, being a shorebird, the chicks are really precocious. So,
2: so they're able to get up and just run around almost immediately. That's
3: right. Yeah, within within a few hours of hatching, they'll dry out, they'll and they'll be on their feet and and running, and they'll leave the nest very quickly afterwards and they pretty sort of autonomous after that that the adult birds will brood them quite a bit tr- particularly during the first week because they're not terribly, they tiny little things and they're not terribly good at regulating their own temperature to start with but after a week or so they're pretty much sort of just doing their own thing and the parents' main role is to sort of act as lookouts and, and basically defend them from any sort of threats that come come their way remarkable little things
2: Oh, well, we should probably move away and let the parents yes. back on.
3: Yes, they've been very tolerant, actually. Haven't
2: yes. They haven't pipped at us for a while. <laughs> so there's another dottel running away pipping yes. to our right there. So there's actually tons of birds out here.
3: There are, at first glance, it doesn't seem like it, you're sort of looking across this barren riverbed and there's not much sign of life, but as soon as they start moving out into the riverbed and walking through birds sort of suddenly just materialise out of nowhere and get up and start moving um, and particularly as you know, as we're walking across the riverbed, we're walking through multiple territories of various shorebirds, banded doctorals and oyster catchers and rye bill, and um, as you go through These birds' territories, they tend to get a little bit upset, particularly if they've got nests or chicks, and sort of make themselves a bit more conspicuous.
2: This dotterel nest and the nearby oyster catcher nest are just two of 240 nests that Nicky and the team have to find and keep an eye on. They're also watching some rye bill nests.
3: Oh, so you can see the rye bill scurrying away to oh, the left here. Oh, it's just creeping off. And it's really handy to see that because it, basically that just confirms the nest is still going.
2: Now that's already running back towards its nest, so it's not nearly as flighty as those oyster catchers were.
3: No, or even the banded dotterel, But the rye bill are remarkably confiding. So because we've stopped to have a look at that bird, um, it's decided, oh well, I can actually just turn around and go back to my nest and sit down. Everything will be Okay.
2: They're quite dumpy little birds, aren't they?
3: Yeah, a bit more solid than the banded doctorals. They're slightly larger, and you can see quite a colour difference too. So, with the, the, the back and the head and the wings of the banded doctriels quite a warm brown colour, these rye are a very cold sort of slate grey on on their wings and their back and their and the, the top of their head. So that you can kind of see then, you know, why they choose these very clean grey, fresh gravels to to nest on. They just blend in perfectly.
2: Ryebills have a uniquely shaped bill. So it's up and off. Hello you, would you look at your very odd bent bill,
3: bent to the right. Male and female ryebill are both quite similar to one another, but the, the giveaway feature is the male has a black stripe across the forehead, just above the bill, whereas the female doesn't. So this bird clearly doesn't. It's only a metre or two from us at the moment. It doesn't have that black stripe, so this is the female that's sitting on the nest at the moment.
2: So ryebills are quite rare, aren't they?
3: Yes, they are. Yeah, so they're the least common of the three shorebirds we're monitoring as part of this project. So I think our best estimates are that there are somewhere around three thousand ryebill left. That's so not not it's terribly not very many. not many. We think there are around sort of nineteen to twenty thousand banded doctorals left, and significantly more oyster catchers, possibly in the high tens of thousands or, no, hundreds of thousands of birds. Our shorebirds are perfectly adapted in a number of ways to dealing with native avian predators that hunt by sight for the most part. So obviously they're extremely well camouflaged in terms of their plumage and their eggs are extremely well camouflaged. So when they're presented with a threat, the common response for these shorebirds is either to sit tight on the nest and be absolutely motionless like this rye is and hope that they just blend in and and don't get noticed and similarly with their eggs they just you know once once they've left their nest they just hope the camouflage of their eggs is sufficient to avoid being spotted by the predators. But of course that's absolutely no good whatsoever if it's a mammalian predator coming along hunting by smell these birds have quite a strong smell and so to a predator it approaching that nest it's extremely obvious that there's a bird sitting there and that there's a potential meal waiting for it and you know if that bird is too slow getting off that nest potentially the adults also at risk as well as the eggs or any chicks that happen to be there um, so yeah it's a perfect illustration of just how unfortunately now they're sort of not particularly well adapted to this new sort of ecology that we've created by introducing these, these mammalian predators into the system and I guess that's the problem we're trying to find a tool to help solve with this, this chemical camouflage project.
2: The scale of the predator problem hits home when Nikki shows me a video from one of the remote cameras.
3: What we're seeing here is a banded doctoral nest at night and a stoat started in um, and actually been quick enough to grab the, the incubating female bird on the nest and in this case actually killed the adult bird. As you can see there just a very quick bite to the back of the neck and then the stoat darts out of frame. And it's quite sad to see because it's incredibly wasteful. So stoats are renowned to go on these sort of killing sprees that they do. Um, and so this particular stoat darted and killed an adult female bird on the nest and left it. So it, it hasn't even eaten it? No, just ran off without, without touching the adult bird, without eating the bird and also without consuming the eggs in the nest as well. So, not only have we lost the nest, but we've also lost a a productive adult bird as well. But the sad thing is that's not the end of the story for this particular nest. So, after that event occurred, the very dedicated male came back and continued incubating those eggs. So, here's a footage of the male coming in the next day and sitting on the nest with his dead mate lying on the ground less than a metre from the nest. And he continued incubating that nest for the next day or two until the next predator came along. And in this case, it was a ferret who visited this nest a few nights later and discovered the remains of the adult female that the stoat had killed two nights before. And the ferret scavenged the dead female that the stoat killed. But doesn't
2: eat the eggs.
3: Once again, this ferret uh, ignored these eggs and just wandered off again. And I think um, by this stage, the, the male had given up incubating the eggs, and the eggs were just left abandoned.
2: So, that's a failed nest?
3: That's a failed nest. So, yes, we had a stoat visiting that nest, and then a ferret. And then, just uh, to top it off, we've had the, uh, a couple of nights later, a, a, a cat was attracted to the nest as well. So,
2: stoats, ferrets, cats. What else is a problem for them
3: yes the the fourth big predator we have in the system, and it 's one that not a lot of people are aware of at the moment um, are hedgehogs. so this here is a, a clip of a hedgehog preying on another banded doctoral nest that we were monitoring
2: and just hovering up that egg
3: absolutely, yep, um, so the hedgehogs yep they 're extremely good at locating these nests, and they'll just sit there and eat the whole clutch. Um, we've got all sorts of heartbreaking footage of hedgehogs at nests for, you know, up to an hour or two at a time, and the parent birds just circling around the nest, getting very upset, as you can imagine, and the hedgehogs just taking their time eating the eggs one at a
4: time. we know who's doing what. And our main culprit is actually hedgehog. So it depends on what riverbed you go to. Some studies have shown that cats are the primary predator on some riverbeds, but our riverbeds, it's hedgehogs. Two-thirds of the predation is by hedgehogs. This is Grant Norbury
2: from Manaki Whenua Landcare Research, and he's leading the team testing a very novel idea for protecting breeding riverbeds, chemical camouflage.
4: Well, it's an interesting one because it's a bit left of field. Uh, When we're trying to protect native fauna from predators... We generally think of killing them, I guess, killing the predators. That's the standard technique we use in New Zealand and it's often around the world as well. And it works quite well, um, but not 100%. And um, we're always looking for alternatives, niche sort of alternatives. So what we're doing with this particular project is we're we're, we're messing around with the psychology of predators. We're not actually removing them, but we're trying to outsmart them.
2: How are you going to do that?
4: Uh, Well... What we're doing is we're sort of capitalising on a phenomenon in with predators, and that is that with gen, what we call generalist predators, they're generalists because they eat a whole variety of things, and we're capitalising on the fact that generalist predators, if they are sniffing something or seeing a cue or smelling a cue of something that's not rewarding, they'll give up on it. It's called habituation. They get bored with it. So if they uh, smell something that's odd but it doesn't have any food reward, they'll, they'll quit that one. They'll just go in the background of their senses. Um, so we're building on that. We're trying to capitalise on that. So what we're doing is we're putting out bird odour, which we get from chicken and quail and gulls, and uh, we put out the bird odour before the native birds arrive to breed and the predators sniff that bird odour, they don't get a food reward, and so they get bored with birds, and so they stick to other parts of their food, which is in this case rabbits, and they concentrate on those.
2: Now when you say you put out bird odour, can you be a little more specific? Are you extracting it from feathers or something?
4: Yeah, yeah. In the case of chickens we are, because we can get lots of chicken fe- feathers thanks to teagle, and that's good. And, um, and the other way is with quail, we buy quail. And we uh, use whole bodies of quail and the same with blackback gulls because blackback gulls, they are native to New Zealand, but they are culled because they do cause problems. We extract the bird odour in the laboratory uh, and we uh, we concentrate that bird odour down to a liquid and then we uh, put it into Vaseline, which doesn't smell. Uh, And so we mix it with Vaseline and then we put it in syringes. And then our staff walk out on these riverbeds and they just put down little, they squeeze out little bits of this uh, Vaseline, odour-impregnated Vaseline, and they squeeze it out, put it on a rock and smear it over that rock and keep walking on and do it again and again and again and again. It takes a lot of time. If this thing works, we would eventually look at deploying odour in a more cost-effective way, perhaps using drones. So you're right, we prime the area a month before the birds arrive and the predators are sniffing it out not getting a food reward. Once the birds arrive, they're quite cryptic. So the predators are using smell primarily to find these birds, not sight. We keep the odour going while the birds are there breeding so the predators are still being fooled part of the time.
2: This sounds like something you could conceivably imagine doing. Oh, I could do this in my backyard. But you're doing it over a huge area, aren't you?
4: Yeah, we are. This method was published in Australia. It was quite a small study. It was done by a PhD student, Catherine Price, and her supervisor, Peter Banks. And it was done on a fairly small scale. So we're the first in New Zealand to test it on an operational landscape scale. And, yeah, you're right. The areas are big. They're sort of seven or 800-odd hectares and we've got a couple of sites like that in the riverbeds of the Mackenzie Basin where we put out the odour, and then we have another couple of sites of that area where we don't put out odour. And on all four sites, we measure the survival, the nesting survival, or nesting success of things like Bandadotral, Rybill, uh, South Island Pied Oyster Catcher, which are all native and all have problems, all in decline. And, uh, yeah, we're getting some interesting results. So this is what, year two? Yeah, year two. How did year one go? We got quite a good result. We um, On one side it doubled the nesting success where we put out the odour and the other side it was it was an increase but it wasn't quite so spectacular. So we're encouraged by that. So this year, because we've got low replication, we're switching the treatments. But it's early days.
2: I'm Alison Balance, and in this Our Changing World feature on chemical camouflage, I'm back out on the Cass River Delta to meet the odour deployment and predator monitoring team.
0: Hi, I'm Gretchen Brownstein. I work for Landcare Research, and I'm part of the chemical camouflage team. So, you've already been out around here this morning doing a bit of work? Yep, so we've been doing monitoring work this morning. We've got a series of tunnels out here. So, 24 tunnels on the site that are split between the river and the terrace. And we're just looking to see what sort of animals or predators are out here. So, they're baited each with a little piece of rabbit, and we've got some black tracking ink in there. And so, every six days, we go out and we have a look to see what sort of prints we can find. So, what did you find today? Today, I found hedgehog and cat. Um, And that's about it, actually. We have in the past seen um, ferret in them quite a bit. But we also get a few insects through, um, skinks and weta as well. So sometimes they're a bit more interesting. And then tomorrow, same thing, somewhere else? Uh, tomorrow we're back on the odour. So we do odour every three days at each of the treatment sites. So tomorrow we'll be back on the lower Tikapo. Um, as a team of three, it takes us about seven hours to put out roughly 400-odd points. And, Across um, what sort of area? It's about a k wide, um, so it spans well spans the river, and about 5 k's long. So, pretty big area that we're covering. So how far do you walk every day? Uh, about 20-25 k's, each of us. And we did the maths for last year, and I think we worked out that we each
1: walk the length of the South Island. <laughs>
2: And I just have to say, the wind has suddenly picked up.
1: (laughs) It was nice um, and calm before. You're getting all the weather today. So we've had rain, we've had sun, and now we're getting the delta wind.
2: This is Hayley Um, Ricardo.
1: Yeah, so I brought you a map to look at of our Tekapo site. So um, you can see that it's covered in... It's
2: pretty well covered.
1: All different coloured dots um, right across the river and then up onto the terraces as well. And our job is to get to every single one of those points and put a little blob of Vaseline Um, we've got four flavours of Vaseline that we put out we've got chicken flavoured and there's two different concentrations so 10% and 40% so obviously the 40% is a lot smellier than the 10% and then we've also got quail and gull scent as well. So it's like a Buffet of food yeah. smell. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
2: I'm curious. Is it strong enough for you to smell, or would you have to be something like a cat or a ferret to smell it?
1: No, we can smell it. Yeah, especially the forty percent chicken that just smells horrible. But the other ones not so bad.
2: So you don't think much of it, but the hedgehogs clearly liked it.
1: Yeah, yeah. They definitely get excited about it. Yeah. So on an on an odor day, that's what we call the when we're putting out the chemical camouflage. We probably look a bit crazy to an observer. We're just zigzagging backwards and forwards across the river, bending down, putting a glob of Vaseline, getting up, walking to the next point. Probably the strangest job I've ever had and explaining to people why I smear Vaseline on rocks is, um, yeah, it can be tricky. (laughs)
2: Well, that's a little more sophisticated. When I first heard about this idea... I actually had visions of you running around sprinkling chicken feathers everywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. the important thing is the odour, but what we're trying to do is put odour everywhere without leaving any kind of food reward. So when we put it on the rock, we actually smear it around so it's not like a glob that something could come and eat, but it's more of a something that we just sniff. Quite
2: a lot goes into this project, I have to say.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's... An interesting concept to test, but in terms of um, implementation in the future, it would have to be refined a lot um, to make it a useful technique.
2: And here's hoping that this chemical camouflage works, because at the moment the breeding birds, the dotterals, ryebills and oyster catchers, are getting hammered. When I visited halfway through the two-month study, Nikki had already seen what had happened to 35 nests on the Cass River delta, which was a control site with no smelly vaseline to distract the predators.
3: Of those 35 nests, we've had 12 of those hatch and 23 that have failed for one reason or another, mostly because they've been preyed upon by those three or four main mammalian predators so hedgehogs, ferrets, cats and So two
2: thirds of them have failed?
3: Yes, that's right, yep, which is fairly typical so the CAS is a non-treatment site this year, Um, so both this year and last year we found that two thirds to three quarters of the nests at those two sites don't make it through, they fail um, for the most part because of those predators that we've been seeing on the video footage.
2: So it's pretty much the same story on the upper Tekapur, but what's happening on the lower Tekapo, which is a treatment site?
3: That's right, Yes, yeah. so that's a treatment site where we've had a reasonable number of nest outcomes already. So we've had 25 nests which have um, reached completion. And of those 25, 12 have hatched and 13 have failed. So that's a hatching success rate of closer to 50%, which is... Interestingly, quite a bit higher than our paired non-treatment site, the Upper Tekapur. So it's still pretty early days, but it's looking quite interesting, this result, quite promising.
2: Either way, though, it's still a tough job out there to be a pair of birds trying to successfully get your chicks away.
3: Absolutely. Because
2: your hit rate's not that great.
3: No, no. And these are you know, relatively long-lived, relatively slow-breeding birds with long, longish incubation periods. They can't get too many nesting attempts through each year. They don't have too many goes at it each year. So, um, you know, it's just having done this work for the last two years and just been watching all of this footage, I kind of marvel in a way that we have any of these birds left, to be honest.
2: It's not all death and gloom, though. The trail cameras have recorded some miraculous moments that are a testament to the persistence of riverbed birds such as the wee banded
3: dotteral. This is a particularly lucky nest that we had at the Cass Delta recently. So there are some non-human related causes of nest failure that these birds have to deal with. So of course being riverbed nesting birds, one of the obvious things that they are at risk of having their nests flooded from time to time. And we had one particular nest at the Cass Delta where the bird chose a relatively risky nest site. So here's some footage of a bird nesting on a very, very narrow gravel island.
2: That water is just centimetres away.
3: Yes, yes. so she's picked a very um, risky site in some respects, so she's only centimetres from the water's edge, possibly a very clever site in other respects in that um, we do know that shorebirds nest on islands surrounded by water are less susceptible to predation by because predators. predators don't like getting their feet wet? Exactly, yeah, particularly the hedgehogs. So in some respects she's very clever at doing this, but in other respects she's taking quite a high-risk approach and nesting so close to the water's edge. And in this particular case it almost didn't pay off for her. So this next next clip here shows a flood event that came through. It's rained, late, the
2: river's gone come up and, and, and there's water everywhere.
3: And the nest has been inundated. And the parent bird's trying to desperately trying to keep his eggs from floating away in the flood, basically. So the eggs are bobbing around in the water and he's trying to keep them together and gather them together. Um, And in fact, both the male and the female bird, they were sitting on the eggs in the water, trying to keep them warm. Um, The remarkable thing is this usually doesn't have a happy ending, as you can imagine. But in this particular case, we had this miraculous outcome where the eggs didn't wash away. The birds continued to incubate them even when they were sort of bobbing around in the water. And two weeks later, we had this outcome.
2: Little fluffy chicks.
3: Yes, so we're looking at a still image here of three newly hatched fluffy chicks on a now dry island. Um, so these three chicks had absolutely no idea just how lucky they were, how close they came to being washed away in the flood a couple of weeks earlier.
2: Thanks, Nicky. And if you'd like to see the video and photos he was talking about, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Now that was Nicky MacArthur and he works for Wildlife Management International. We also heard from Grant Norbury, Hayley Ricardo and Gretchen Brownstein and they all work at Manaki Whenua Landcare Research. Cheers everyone, I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 1st of February 2018. And why is it February already? What happened to January? Anyway, don't forget you can always find us on the web at rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World, as well as on the RNZ app. On Twitter and Facebook, we are RNZ Science. If you haven't already subscribed to RNZ, Our Changing World, the podcast, well, you should. Find it on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes and Radio Public. Please take a second to rate and review us. It helps other people find us. Thanks heaps. To find out what other podcasts RNZ has on offer, check out the podcasts and series page at rnz.co.nz. Radio. Bye for now. Ka kite anō.
0: Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.